Well, good morning. Good morning. <laughs> my name's Kevin. Uh, I'm one of the, the pastors here at Hillside. As, look, I've got my name tag on and everything, so you can, it's to prove it, you know. Um, uh, I'm glad that you're here. Uh, I'm glad that you're tuning in online. Um, I hope that as we encounter God's word this morning, that he would move in us, um, that we'd be shaped by what he has to say. Um, we are in our continued series in the gospel according to Matthew. So if you have a Bible, and I'd always recommend that you have a Bible, um, would you turn in it to, uh, Matt, do you remember what chapter we're in? Yeah, I, I heard six. We're in Matthew six. Um, so as you're turning there, this week, Facebook, uh, as you probably know, announced that they'd be changing their name and their vision for their company. Um, apparently it's going to be called Meta. And it seems like uh, it will be, in essence, be this place where you're supposed to share not just your photos and opinions, but where you can live out your entire life. So your parties, work meetings, game nights, shopping trips, you name it, it's all virtual. And I mean, after this kind of like virtual year that we've had, it almost seems like the next logical step in technology. In some ways, it almost makes sense. Because if we have the technology to allow for this kind of efficiency, why not use it? And that's kind of the narrative of the world that we've created for ourselves, that efficient means better. Maximize your potential as much as you possibly can. Don't leave any stone unturned, any opportunity unexplored. But somehow with all of this efficiency and potential chasing, somehow we are still more busy than we used to be. Our lives are accelerating, and it's kind of exhausting. So we keep looking forward to the next opportunity. We, we want to buy books. We want to be the type of person who reads good books. So we buy the books. And if you've been to my office, you know this is a problem for me. And then, then you walk past the books, and part of you are like, oh, I'm pretty proud that I'm the type of person who owns that kind of book. And then get pretty guilty because, like, I've never read that book. <laughs> or wanting to learn everything there is to learn about parenting, but not being able to keep up um, and finding relief in those bloggers who talk about how everybody ruins a birthday cake at their toddler's birthday. But then even then, you're like, but I'm not that cool of a parent where I can like casually like slide through messing up my kid's birthday cake. We keep chasing these next potential, this next piece of technology. On this, this Facebook ad for their new meta thing, that I got so stressed out because of all the things. Like, oh, somebody just sent a photo. We should share that photo. This person's around. We should, because there's a potential to meet with someone, we need to take it. We need to fill in all our lives with the maximum amount of efficiency so we don't miss up. We don't miss out. The narrative we keep telling ourselves is faster, faster. And we're simultaneously faced with the anxiety of trying to keep up this pace. Is it just me? And as we try and fight this anxiousness, um, I think at least I can feel discouraged or even depressed um, as we realize that maybe we actually just can't keep up any longer. It's just too fast. And if you feel that way, maybe you don't, but if you feel that way, it makes sense. It makes sense that we feel discouraged and anxious. And this is why that we come to the word of God and ask him to speak to us. 
Uh, it's in light of the world that we find ourselves in that Jesus speaks of a new kingdom, a new way of doing things. Uh, the section of scripture uh, this morning, this is, as you remember, in the middle of a sermon by Jesus, and his entire purpose is to tell us what, as a king, his kingdom looks like. And boy, is it good news. So if you're able and willing, would you stand with me as we read God's word for us this morning? We'll be reading at Matthew 6, beginning at verse 19. Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If, then, the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Spirit of the living God, uh, we believe this word is yours. Uh, we believe that you inspired your follower, Matthew, to remember and truthfully recount it for us. And Lord, as we want to interact with your kingdom, Lord, may your kingdom come. May we experience the good news of what it means to have you as a king in the midst of our world. So give us hearts that are tender to what you'd like to say to us even if you ruffle some of our feathers. <laughs> and so, Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, you may take a seat. Uh, this is probably a pretty familiar passage for many of us, and I think it should be. I'll tell you, it will help us if it becomes more and more familiar to each of us. Because here, Jesus reminds his hearers, and he reminds us something that we all know to be true, and yet somehow we don't know it to be true. That nothing that we invest in is truly secure. We try to keep things secure, but ultimately, unexpected circumstances happen. I know friends who had to abandon their home because the mountain it was built on began to slide. And others who had everything they owned burned up in a house fire just after the birth of their first child. Others who had, uh, there's that, that, that poor soul who accidentally threw out his hard drive with a Bitcoin worth about $600 million on it, and he's been in the dump ever since looking for it. And then what if we do keep it secure? What if you make it to the end of your life and you kept it? Well, then you die. And we can't take our treasures with us, although some have tried. There's that story of the lady who wanted her friend to take all of her cash and put it in her casket. And so her friend obediently came to the funeral home and wrote out a personal check and put it in. <laughs> no matter what, trying to amass wealth here on earth is a really unreliable enterprise. And we know this 
But do we know this? Do we live our lives as if it's true? Sometimes I don't think so. We still, I still, keep trying to store up treasures here on earth. And so our loving Savior, the one who would invite us to a new kingdom, reminds his listeners that moths are still going to keep chewing holes in their expensive fabrics. Their food is still going to go bad. Thieves are still going to find ways to get at their money. There's a realism here that Jesus draws out to remind us that, like Job, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will leave this life. So in light of this, Jesus says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. This makes sense, right? Put your investments in a place that is reliable. I don't think what Jesus is saying is that we should just transfer our materialism to heaven. The description that the Bible gives us of heaven, what we're supposed to imagine when we think about heaven, is definitely majestic and beautiful. But I don't think it's helpful or probably even true to believe that I might forfeit a mansion in Anmore here, but then I'll have a seaside estate for eternity. <laughs> I think that might be missing the point. It feels just like, I don't know if Jesus' goal is to give us our idols at the end of all time. Um, but there's one thing that, uh, in Scripture, when we look at it, that there's only one thing that actually comes with us to eternity, and it's ourselves, our life being, the life that Jesus is giving us. And as I read texts that talk about reward in heaven, it seems to have a lot more to do with the qualities that we developed while we were running the race. Jesus' concern everywhere throughout scriptures is that we are formed into a people who resemble him. Formed not just so that we'll finally look like Jesus just before we die, but because our lives continue into eternity. Because our lives here on earth, as we've talked about before, are uniquely situated to help us learn character in the midst of testing. And that character will be the launching point for our eternal life with him. I think when he talks about treasure, that seems to make a little bit more sense than Jesus just rewarding us with more materialism at the end. Maybe I'm wrong. You can take a read and see what you think. But in any case, Jesus makes a compelling argument for storing up treasures in heaven rather than on earth. It's just a more reliable investment where it's going to be destroyed or where it's going to be kept, right? So is this just simple investing? I don't think so. Because as always, Jesus is most concerned with our hearts. So he summarizes, he summarizes what he's teaching us. He says, for, he says, because, I tell you this because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Maybe put another way, where we store up our treasure reflects where our heart, where our affections really are placed. An old pastor of mine used to frequently say that you could always figure out where someone's priorities were by looking at their diary and their checkbook. So now those items um, may be a little bit outdated for some of us, but the principle continues to be true. That is, where we spend our time and our money tells us a great deal about what we believe to be important. 
And Jesus is profoundly concerned throughout this whole sermon about what we believe to be most important in our lives. He's never interested in simply correcting our behavior. He wants to transform our hearts. Many of you know that before I began to work as a full-time pastor here, I studied biology up at SFU um, with plans to move toward a career likely focused around a research laboratory. Um, I'm kind of that nerd, and even in my colleagues, I'm the nerd who like, likes to do the benchtop work where it's just really like, intense, precise, repetitive, 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 repetitive work. Um, I love doing experiments and covering data, learning about our world. I just find that so cool. But all that said, all that kind of work accomplished, a couple years before um, I began working here at Hillside, God had been slowly shifting the direction of my life. Or at least I had finally noticed that he was shifting the direction of my life. For a season, I was actually working uh, about half-time at another local church and half-time on my research and writing. And I honestly had no idea what the future for me was supposed to hold. It's a far longer story than I'll get into right now, but eventually I ended up presented with a fork in the road. Was I supposed to honor God by being a scientist or honor God by being a pastor here at Hillside? Because for the record, we're all supposed to honor God in our, in our careers. Um, your job just as much as mine. So I had to think. And as I thought about it and prayed about it, I talked to my dear friends and to my church. Something became clear to me. There were many good reasons for me to serve as a scientist and many good reasons for me to serve as a pastor. But it did seem the scales were tipping in the direction of a call to be a pastor. But there were two reasons that I didn't want to be a pastor. The first was that I wouldn't make as much money. And that's not just because, like, oh, I wanted a luxurious lifestyle. Like, I'd done a lot of part-time work and taken a lot of student loans kind of expecting to make a scientist-level salary. And I was concerned about making a pastor's salary. And the second reason was that I was scared that my reputation would take a real hit in my field. I was terrified that my colleagues would look at all of my effort and all of the work that I'd put in, and they'd lower their heads just in disbelief and go, what a waste. That kid spent all this time, money, and effort, and he's going to throw it all aside for this weird religion thing? What a waste of potential. Friends, God cares about our hearts, and he cares about my heart. And he looked at me and said, Kev, you can orient your life and decisions around your reputation and around your money, but you will never be satisfied. Being a pastor isn't more godly than being a scientist. But by God's grace, to me, it became really clear that choosing science, if it was chiefly because of the potential money and fame, that would not bring me closer to Jesus. And that had to be the priority. It has to be. The God who created us to be like him and to flourish knows how diseased our hearts get when they get misaligned. There are two people really close to me who both have had arrhythmias in their hearts corrected. Essentially, the electrical system in the muscle of their heart keeps taking shortcuts. And the electrical wave, it's just taking the path of least resistance, but in so doing, it's damaging the heart. It's damaging the very thing that's keeping them alive, beat after beat, day after day. God wants our hearts to be in sync with his, 
not because he's a narcissist, but because we are actually dying when we're out of sync with how we were created to live. So Jesus goes on to illustrate this another way. He says, look, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body is full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. Like the idea of the heart, often the eye is used as a reference to the center of your being, your affections, the things that you love, the things you look at, the things that you judge to be good. And if that part of you is unhealthy, it affects everything about your inner self. Do you ever uh, walk into the grocery store on a hot, sunny summer day, or maybe even on a sunny day like today, and you, you wonder why it's so dark in there? And then you realize, always too late, that you're wearing your sunglasses still? That's kind of the image here, that the perspective that we have, the lenses that we look through, affects everything about how we see the world around us. And Jesus, everywhere in the count of his life, keeps telling his followers that you can either look at everything through the lens of the broken world that we're part of, or you can look at things through the lenses of a coming kingdom. Now, this isn't about rose-colored glasses. This isn't about putting on glasses that just make everything look great so that we can be happy. No, Jesus wants us to be in sync with reality. If you're wearing sunglasses and you're trying to read nutrition labels and no frills, that's not some edgy vibe. It's just a fake perspective on reality. Jesus wants us to be able to remove the unhealthy perspectives that darken our view so that we can actually respond to the reality of the world where he is the king. Uh, do you remember back in chapter 4 of this account? We're told that Jesus' arrival on the scene, uh, when, we're, when he arrives on the scene, we're told the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. He's here to chase away this darkness. And as Jesus continues, do you hear his plea? He says, if then the light within you is dark, how great is this darkness? Friends, that anxiousness we talked about, how we just can't keep our stuff, and we maybe even can't keep up, Jesus looks into this anxiousness of all of ours and sees you and me and goes, how great is this darkness? My goodness, child. This darkness you're in is so deep. You poor thing. Will you let me bring in light? Will you let me take off these sunglasses? Will you trust me? But you'll really have to trust him. Because it's honestly an all or nothing thing, and it's really tough. Jesus says that no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. This is like a cosmic conflict of interest policy. But this isn't something that Jesus is commanding. It's a reality of how we are. And he doesn't want us to be deceived. Like it or not, there's no such thing as a double allegiance. No matter how much we like to convince ourselves that there is. Like many of you, uh, I am a dual citizen. I'm a citizen of both Canada and the Netherlands. And in a time of peace, it's all well and good to be a citizen of both. There's no conflict there. I can live a Dutch life and a Canadian life in parallel with each other. Um, realistically, I live a Canadian life. But you could live those two lives in parallel. And sometimes I think that we can do that spiritually. 
But that's actually ignoring the reality that Jesus is pointing us to. Because if Canada and the Netherlands ever, for some reason, went to war against one another, it's no longer feasible for me to maintain allegiance to both. I will have to choose one and reject the other. The values of Jesus and the values of this world may sometimes look similar, but friends, ultimately, you will have to choose which one you prefer because the paths diverge, and you can't take both. And one of those ways leads to darkness. So if we can't serve two masters, if we can't have double allegiances, I think it would be worth us taking a moment to find out where our allegiances might actually be, where we're storing up our treasures, where our priorities might actually rest. This is really tough. And so, you know, I'm in the exact same place that you are. I really, really like the priorities that I naturally gravitate toward. Uh, as someone who's worked with youth and young adults in churches for quite a long time, um, I'm pretty used to kind of, there's a, a bit of a drop-off in participation. Normally, comes around the ages of like 15 or 16, um, which normally, it coincides with when a lot of people get jobs, and they start dating, and they start focusing on post-secondary education. Rarely do they stop coming because they just hate Jesus. <laughs> and honestly, these are all really exciting steps in their lives. I'm as their pastor, always really excited to see students venture into the adult world. But I wonder about something sometimes. Why is it that it makes sense, that it just makes sense to us to miss church because of work or studies or dance or practice or whatever else? I know for me, if someone says they miss church because they had an exam or homework or whatnot, my response is normally something along the lines of, oh, yeah, of course. That makes sense. But what's the underlying assumption that when push comes to shove, it would be better to be financially stable or to develop talent or to find romance or to shape a career than to be spiritually formed in community? Of, of course, if we could do both, that would be the best. But when they come up against each other, well, of course we're going to do this one. This is not meant to burden you. <laughs> I'm not here saying you've any of you have made wrong choices on this. Um, parenting and navigating about a thousand conflicting priorities, schedules, and emotions, that's an immense task. <laughs> and to reduce it to a simple like, oh, this or that, that wouldn't do justice to any of our lives. My question is less about what choices we make, but just about how automatic some of those decisions are where we might actually not consider that it would be an option not to take that job or not to study for that exam or not to develop that talent because that's when you pray or meet your small group or go to church. I think sometimes the narrative that we live by is so deeply ingrained in our cultures that we don't even realize that we're living it. I wonder if the priorities that we have for our lives, for our kids' lives, I wonder how different they might look from those who don't follow Jesus. How much has the good news of Jesus shaped our perspective? Or is it maybe just a helpful add-on in our pursuit of a beautiful home, a secure retirement, and a promising career? Beautiful homes, secure retirements, and promising careers are all excellent and beautiful things. The question isn't whether they're good. The question is always a personal one. Have they supplanted God? 
we call those idols. Good things, really good things that have become God things. This pandemic moment has actually turned up the temperature on a thousand different issues, and it's not my job to tell you how to feel about that. But I have noticed one thing, at least in my own heart, that the things that make me most frustrated, angry, and upset these days are normally linked to things that I idolize. These are things that are really good, like freedom, or health, or safety, or peace, or democracy. But their goodness has become toxic because they've actually been prioritized above God. I'll tell you, over the past year, I've had a lot more Christians share with me their gospel around COVID than they have the gospel of Jesus. And what I desperately need to hear is the good news about Jesus. And sadly, I too have probably told more people about the good news of this or that than I have about the good news of the saving work of Jesus Christ. What occupies your thoughts, your daydreams, when you have nothing else to do? That'll help you think about what you treasure. It's probably a really good thing, but does it win out against God and the way that, of life that he's offering you? What do you worry about most? What keeps you up at night, stressed? If you lost that or ruined this or failed that, will you have lost all of your hope? What metrics do you evaluate other people by? On what basis do you call someone successful or cool or wise? Is it based on the sweetness of Jesus that you notice from them? The character of God that emulates from the way that they live? I told you this is tough. And it is a horrible exercise unless we actually trust that he wants to bring us freedom. Do you believe that he wants to bring light to these dark places? Interestingly, uh, Jesus identifies that for many of us, these idols actually revolve around our stuff. Because at the end, he adds a reminder, you cannot serve both God and money. I think it would be accurate to interpret this as you cannot serve both God and materialism. We've encountered this idea before. Our discipleship will be hindered if we're obsessed with our stuff. You'll have problems being hospitable if you love things. There are several moments where Jesus turns to disciples throughout his life and says, it is really difficult for rich people to follow me. And I always find when we get to that passage, we jump in to say, but you still can be rich and follow Jesus. It's not a sin to be rich. It's interesting. Jesus actually doesn't include that caveat. I don't think it's inherently sinful to be rich. But the fact that we really, really, really want permission from Jesus to be allowed to be rich, that's pretty revealing in itself, isn't it? It is profoundly difficult to surround yourself with wealth and not be petrified of losing it. Now remember, Jesus' goal isn't to specify a particular behavior. His goal is for us to develop hearts that are like his hearts that are in sync with his. Do you trust him that he wants to bring you life? There's uh, something that's really easy 
to miss. It's easy to feel burdened or weighed down whenever Jesus asks us to do something. And that makes sense. Because for many of us, doing what people ask of us is the way that we earn their trust. For some people, that's how you earn their love or earn a place at their table. Not so with Jesus. If we feel weighed down by the stuff that we have to do, if some of these idols are like, going, ah, I need to make a change, or I, I really don't like that Kevin said that, um, and that's for you and the Holy Spirit to talk about, I don't listen to what I'm telling you to do. <laughs> um, but if we look at these things and we feel weighed down, we haven't really understood Jesus. Come to me, all you who have heavily burdened yourself, and I will give you rest. So look at what we just read. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve two masters. An equally good translation is you cannot be a slave to both God and money. Friends, Jesus is not trying to rob you of your treasure. He's trying to set you free from your slavery to the wrong things. He's trying to help you remove the sunglasses to heal your heart that isn't beating properly. He loves you so, so deeply that he can't stand seeing you sit enslaved in the world's ideas of success. In the language that this is recorded in, Jesus gets to verse 19 in this passage, and he shifts from, like, y'all to you. As if to look at every single individual in the audience. Maybe imagine yourself sitting in that crowd. He looks you in the eye and says, Beloved, stop. Stop storing up treasure here on earth. You're enslaved. You're dying. I love you. Loved ones, if you trust in Jesus as your king, you are actually living in a kingdom where you no longer need to be a slave to your success, to your performance, to your career, to your status, to your opinions, to your politics, to anything. You serve the true king now. And he has come to set captives free. So how do we remind ourselves that we're free? Well, I'd refer you to the last, like, however many weeks that we've been going through this study. We've been talking about them. The first, we learned that our treasure is not in our finances, but we forget. So we give. We give our money away to teach us that that's not where we get our hope. That's not where our treasure is. We'll be okay without it. Then we learned that our treasure is not in getting our own way, but we forget. So we give our independence away in prayer. We ask for God's will to be accomplished in our community because we'll be okay if we don't get our own way. Then we learned that our treasure is not in having enough food or comfort, but we forget, so we fast. We take regular breaks from eating to teach us that fulfilling our desires is not where we get our hope. We'll be okay without them. Elsewhere, we learn that our treasure is not a crazy, productive calendar, but we forget. So we take a day off working to remind ourselves that God, not me, runs the universe, and we'll be okay, and the world will not collapse without that extra day of work. We want to train the muscle memory of our hearts 
to remember that the stuff of this earth is not where our real treasure should be found. Friends, the good news, remember this is the good news about Jesus, according to Matthew. The good news is he has come to set you free from your captivity. And a lot of what he's doing here is reminding us that we're slaves to things we don't think are our slaves. We think this is our, our treasure. <laughs> and it's our slave master. So um, this week, uh, as, a, as a practice that might help, um, and I'm nervous to ask you to do this because I don't want to do it. <laughs> which probably means we should do it, um, is to think about uh, most of us, are, a lot of our idols fall in materialism and ways to get materialism. I'd love to you to think about something that you, that you love and give it away. Maybe to someone, probably importantly, to someone who doesn't deserve it. To remind yourself, this can't be my boss. Because if this is going to win out against Jesus, I have to choose Jesus. This is difficult. Um, ask me if I did it next week. <laughs> and we'll see. But, man, to gain the world and lose Jesus, to gain the world and forfeit our own souls, that's not good investing. So, let me pray for you, and we're going we're gonna to pray in response through song. Lord Jesus, we're pretty caught up in the world that we live in, and to us, the way that we do things feels normal. It feels normal to make these pursuits our main pursuit and to make them our main treasure. And Lord, you look in with such love and such care into our lives to say, look, I don't want you to be enslaved. I want you to follow me. I want you to be like me. So Lord, we desperately need your work in our hearts to transform us and to shape us to be people who look like you. Thank you that you are tender, Lord, that you don't beat us over the head to get us to do these things. In fact, you're slowly unlocking the handcuffs we've put ourselves in, slowly leading us out of the prison cells that we just keep running back to. Thank you that you're king. Thank you that you love us. Lord, continue to work on our hearts this week. And as a result, may the Tri-Cities notice your kingdom come here at Hillside and in all the areas it touches. Say these things in Jesus' name. Amen.